We are in Acts chapter 9, actually. Um, there's Bibles in the back. I'm going to have most of the verses up on the screen. There's a lot to cover. We are in Acts chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 32, where we left off last week. We're going through the book of Acts. Uh, we are going to take a break and do a series on the atonement. It's going to be a five-part series before Easter, and then jump back into Acts to finish up the spring. Um, but today we're in Acts chapter 32. We're going to be looking at 9.32 through verse 16 of chapter 10. Um, at first, when we, uh, particularly um, Ricky and I, were looking at the passage of Scripture, what we're going to preach through and how much we're going to, we're going to go through at, at a certain Sunday, um, I saw the healing that takes place in chapter 9, verse 32, through the end of the chapter as a, a, just a historical narrative without really any connection to the very important incident that takes place in chapter 10, which is the conversion of Cornelius and his family and his friends. And I, I said to Ricky, I'm just going to mention the healing, move on, and jump right into chapter 10. And then as I studied this week particularly, I saw how these two stories in chapter 9, in the end of chapter 9, become the bridge by which God will declare again to the Jewish people and to the world that salvation is not only for the Jews, but it's open for every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every culture. So I did a little backtrack. You know, we talked about this. Jesus told his disciples during his post-resurrection appearance and his visit that there'll be witnesses in Jerusalem, the center of Judaism, to Judea, the outskirts, then to Samaria, which is north of Jerusalem, and then to the whole world. And on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came and he empowered the New Testament church to do just that, to do just that, to be witnesses to the whole world. If you remember in Acts chapter 2, in the day of Pentecost, that, that worship service that took place on that day, it was a multilingual and multicultural gathering. Different languages and different cultures had gathered, and the Holy Spirit came upon them, speaking in different languages. Now, some of us would say, yeah, well, you know, it's, it's common today that we know that God loves all people and that God doesn't have prejudice towards certain people groups. But in that day, particularly, and maybe, maybe you don't feel that way today, hopefully I'll change your mind, but in that day, um, even some clear signs that God gave to the early church were not really seen all that important. And even the apostles, even the apostles were slow to see how God was going to save the Gentiles and how God was going to save the Gentiles, other people than the Jewish people. That's a Gentile. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. Up to now, it's been mostly Jewish. Although the church had been persecuted and spread, and some of the Samaritans, as you remember, it spread to Samaria, the hated race. They were half Jew, uh, half Gentile, and they, uh, we see Peter's there, and this, this mini Pentecost takes place, and the Samaritans come to faith, and many of them are baptized in the Holy Spirit, and, and God shows the Jewish people that these half-Jews and half-Gentiles uh, you know, are, are, are breeding ground for the gospel. But they were still half-Jewish. The Samaritans were still half-Jewish. I cannot overemphasize the importance of chapter 10, Cornelius the Gentile, and the vision that led up to his conversion, how important that is in the life of the church and in the New Testament. Over the past two weeks, we saw Saul, Tarsus, Tarsus, who became Paul the Apostle, the writer of 13 New Testament books. And we saw him through chapter 8, uh, chapter 9, I mean, and uh, chapter 8, we saw his conversion. We spent two weeks on that. And now Luke, in chapter 9, verse 32, switches gears and introduces or reintroduces us to a man named Peter, the apostle. And now in Acts chapter 9, 32, all the way through to eleven eighteen, it's all about Peter. It's all about Peter. Well, Paul had to be converted to Christ, which we looked at the past two weeks. Peter needed his own conversion in a sense. And I'm going to talk about Peter's continued conversion today, and I want to make something very clear. When I say Cornelius needed to be converted to Christ, he needed to have an initial relationship with Jesus. We're going to talk about that. When I talk about Peter being once again converted, I'm not talking about his initial salvation because he's a saved man, but he needed to see how his way of thinking to see the implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace, in breaking down the cultural and racial barriers that were up between the Gentiles and the Jews. It's very hard for me to 
understand that, coming from the culture I come from, and very hard for you to understand that. But I'm going to try to do my best to bring you into their world so you can see that this is a major, major incident in the New Testament, that God now is reaching outside Judaism and saving Gentiles. So the conversion of Peter is just as important, or the continued conversion, this this transformation of Peter, is just as important as the conversion, the initial saving conversion of Cornelius. Absolutely very, very hard for me to tell you how important that is. Hopefully I will do an okay job today. Okay, so we'll look at the conversion of Cornelius. As I said, we're going to look at the stories and how this all took place. We're really going to do it in two parts. I'm only get halfway done today. We're going to look first at the pre-op of Peter's conversion. I say pre-op because he needed a heart surgery. Okay? He's a saved man. He loves Jesus, but he needed a heart surgery. Then the providential prayer of Cornelius and how God was was drawing Cornelius. We'll talk about that. And then the progress of Peter's contempt because Peter had to learn some valuable things and valuable information, okay? So that's where we're at. Oh, let me back up. Can you really see that all that great? Not really. All right, we'll get to that. Hopefully you'll be able to see some of that. I'll show you in a minute. Um, So major operation needs to take place. Now, there are two details, two stories. Look at chapter 9. Um, in your Bibles, verse 32, and following for the rest of the chapter, these two events leading up to Peter and Cornelius, uh, uh, Peter's transformation, Cornelius' conversion, um, two healings, Aeneas and a woman named Dorcas who was raised from the dead. And these two events is what led Peter, who was in Joppa at the time, to be sent to Caesarea to visit an Italian man. I like that. Because he's eating his lasagna and it's got pork in it. And, and, and Peter needs to go there and tell this Italian about Jesus, all right? So those of you who have said that Italians are hard-headed, we still, by the grace of God, can come to faith in Jesus. So that's good news for my people. So we're going to look at these two events. And when most commentators, if you read anything about these events, one of the questions they have is why does Luke, ending with Paul's conversion starting with this great story of Cornelius, why is he sandwiching these two stories, these two healings between that? What's the purpose? What's the reason? Okay? Um, Some commentators make a a very big deal. Some commentators just brush over it. But I want to give you three quick things. Well, I believe that Luke put these two healing stories between the conversion of Saul and the opening of the door of the gospel to the Gentiles. Number one. As with all miracles, they point to something greater than the miracle themselves. His name is Jesus, okay? Jesus. We already talked a lot about this just as a way of reminder. Peter's ability to bring healing and to raise the dead in our, in our story was Jesus working through him. It wasn't Peter. It was Jesus working through him, verifying, making it clear to everyone that he is resurrected from the grave, he is alive and well, and is still healing people, because he healed people while he walked the earth, and now he's healing people, because he's alive, and he's working through Peter, okay? That's the, this, that's the deal. Secondly, it's, again, I believe Luke's way of saying that Peter was an authenticated, uh, was, was a bona fide apostle of Jesus, okay? We already talked about this a little bit, that healings and, 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 and wonders and signs was a way to authenticate true apostolic authority. First, Second Corinthians 12, Paul writes, the signs of a true apostle are performed among you with utmost patience, signs and wonders and mighty works. Paul is saying, look, we do the miracles, we're in pattern with Jesus, we have the same power Jesus working through us, and it authenticates us as a true apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that our message and our, and our ministry is from divine revelation. Jesus has given us that, and the healings authenticate that. So Peter is saying Jesus is alive and well. Luke is saying Peter is an authenticated apostle of Jesus. And third, and I don't want to make too much of this, but I do want to say that where Peter goes from Jerusalem to Lydda to Joppa then to Caesarea was loaded with a lot of Gentiles. Some people make a big deal of it. But the truth is, or the reality is, there were a lot of Gentiles in that region. Okay, so 
Luke, I believe, is building this bridge to what's going to happen to the church and how the church needs to expand their missional, their, their understanding of salvation uh, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the rest of the world. So I think Luke, by sharing these miracles in these regions, is setting up the next event where Cornelius, the, the Gentile, comes to the Lord showing that God is still powerfully working through this apostle, this apostolic authority of Peter, and he's God's instrument Peter is to make this breakthrough. He was there when Samaria came to faith. And that those people, and they, God opened the door to the, the Samaritans. Now, even though Philip, which Ricky did a great job preaching a couple weeks ago, was a Gentile and got saved, this story takes up a lot of, the new, a lot of narrative. And, and it's really the first Gentile that's recognized in the New Testament where the whole community is being baptized with the Holy Spirit. So something special, something unique about this incident and this Gentile coming to faith, him and his family and his friends. There's something very special going on here. Now, we don't know. We saw Peter back in chapter 8. He was off to Samaria, and he came down from Samaria, and he's in Jerusalem. If you remember back in chapter 8, we pick it up now. And now Peter's on the move. Peter's on his way. And now, I hope you could see this. All right, let me see if I can point this out. Yeah, okay. Here's Judea. Bethlehem, Jerusalem's right here. So Peter now went up to Samaria with Philip and then came back down, checking it out, saying, you know, what's going on up there? They get saved and baptized in the Holy Spirit. We, we went through that already. Then now he, Peter, is on the move from Jerusalem and he's headed out to Lydia, or Lydda, excuse me. So this bloom is, is, is his footsteps in the sand. No, um, there's only one step because Jesus is carrying him. But anyway, so he's on his way to Lydda, which is right there. Now Joppa's on the coast. See it right there? This is the Mediterranean Sea. And then Caesarea is over here. So, so when we go in the story, it goes from Jerusalem, Lydda, Joppa, up to Caesarea. Okay? Now, if you remember, who went on ahead of Peter to that area was Philip, the evangelist. Preaching the gospel. The man couldn't sit still, couldn't stop talking about Jesus. So it's possible from a human perspective, I believe, you know, we know that God sent Peter there, but it's possible that Peter was detached from Jerusalem as as authority as an apostle to go, listen, (laughs) Philip's on the loose, man, there are all kinds of people getting saved. You better go check out what's going on, just make sure everything is cool. So he's following Peter's, uh, excuse me, Philip's footsteps because I think maybe there are Gentiles along the way that are getting saved. Maybe they sent Peter out to see what was going on. That's possible. We don't know exactly why he's going humanly, but I think that's a good enough, that, I think that's a, probably a pretty good reason why he's going. So the pre-op of Peter's, Peter's conversion, look with me. Chapter 9, verse 32, here we go. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, or Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you, rise and make your bed. And immediately arose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. First, let me point out in this text that the word saint is the word hagios. It's where we get the word set apart, consecrated, and he calls them saints. They're not dead people. They're not people that have done a bunch of miracles. The Bible, when the Bible calls us saints, they talk about us being the set-apart ones for God. It's not our righteousness, it's his righteousness. It's not our goodness, it's his goodness, okay? We are the sanctified or set-apart ones of God, okay? That's what saints means. And Peter is going to the saints in Lydda to see what was going on. And, And I know some of you come from a tradition that talks about, you know, a certain amount of miracles had to take place. A certain amount of, uh, of things of that n- needed to happen. That's not what the Bible calls us. It's not our righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness. It's that Jesus set us apart. That's why we are called saints. And the verse says that while Peter was in Lydda with God's people, he went to a man who was paralyzed and bedridden for eight years. Now the Greek could be rendered bedridden from the age of eight. So either he was bedridden for eight years or he was eight years old. It was a young man who was paralyzed. 
who was stuck to his bed. And notice what Peter did not say. He did not say, in the name of Jesus Christ, I heal you. That's not what he says. He's done that before, but that's not what he says here. Look at the text. He says, Jesus Christ, heal you. Rise, make your bed. He's alive. He gives all the glory to Jesus. He takes none for himself. And now some of you young families who have young children are wondering how Peter had the power to tell someone who possibly was eight years old to rise and make his bed, and he doesn't. But that's what he does. And he rises and he rolls up his bed. Jesus is alive. He wants everyone to know it. It's Jesus that heals you. That's what he says. And he says, a lot of residents, or all the residents, that's the way of Luke saying a lot of people, saw the miracle and turned to Christ. They repented and trusted Jesus. That's what it says. And they turned to the Lord. That's repentance. They turned to the Lord. And and may I say, that's the proper response to miracles, is turning to the Lord. See, this, this individual would have died and spent a Christless eternity in hell. So the bedridden, the, 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 being stuck, paralyzed is bad, but nothing compared to that. So what was most important is that they're turning to the Lord. They're trusting in Jesus. And now I'll tell you that that miracle has a lot in common with Luke 5, 17. Remember the story. Remember, guy brought a paralytic man in, couldn't get in the house. They go up on the roof, they cut a hole, they lower him down. He's laying on a mat. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And then to say, I have authority to forgive sins, what does he say? Get up, pick up your mat, and go. Same thing. Peter was with Jesus. Peter is copying. Peter is mimicking his Lord. Even the next miracle, look at verse, uh, the next miracle in, in, uh, in, our, in our text. It is similar to the story of Jairus' daughter in Luke 8, verse 36. Now there was in Joppa a disciple. Now remember, Peter went to Lydda, heals the man. Now Joppa, there's, a, there's a one in Joppa, which is closer to the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. Now Tabitha means gazelle. In Aramaic, deer, it's, it's, it's the word that's used in the Song of Solomon in a very poetic, loving way. Um, she's characterized by this grace and charm in her life, it says, that she was uh, acts of good works and, and of charity. Her name, in the, it translated into Greek, is Dorcas. That's why they say Dorcas and Tabitha. Now, in Joppa, about 10 miles away, uh, in those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. So this woman, Dorcas, this gazelle, this one that loved people and was generous to people, was a servant of God, loved Jesus, is dead, and they wash her, and they lay her in the upper room. Now, as I was reading that this morning, almost everybody points out the fact that that's not really the way Jewish people would do it. They would wash and anoint the body, but then they would bury the body. Most commentators would agree that they were expecting a miracle. That they showed great faith. They've heard Peter was nearby. They're like, you know what? Before we put her in the ground, before we put her in in a rock uh, tomb, let's see what Peter can do. Verse 38. Since Lida was near Joppa, again, 10 miles away, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him. They urged him, please come to us today without delay. So Peter rose up and went with them, and he arrived. They took him to the upper room. All the widows and, the, and uh, all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made. Look at all the things she had done. Look at all the work she did. She, she's a servant of God. She loves the Lord. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And during the during and turning to the body, he said, "Tabitha, arise." And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all of Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Now, both incidents, Jesus' healing of Jairus' daughter and Dorcas here, happened when the healer was summoned. So that's, that's common. That, that was similar, I should say. Peter here is weeping, puts the mourners out. 
Jesus also, in his story, puts the mourners out. He wasn't looking to put on a show. He was going to raise this young girl from the dead. Jesus, in Luke 8, takes Jairus' daughter by the hand and says, Talitha kum, if you remember, little lamb, little girl, it's time to get up. It's sunny out. That's what a father would say to their daughter. It's sunny out, awaken, and she opens her eyes, and she comes back to life. Unlike Jesus, Peter could not speak in his own authority. Jesus, excuse me, Peter sends them out and, and, and has all the marks of Elijah, too, if you remember the raising of the sun in, in, in 1 Kings 17. Peter kneels down and he prays. And he prays. And then he speaks to the corpse. One letter different in the words. Instead of Talitha kum, he says Tabitha kum. Following the example of his Lord and Savior. And she opens her eyes and she's wakened. Peter did not claim to have power on his own, to do miracles and healings on his own. Rather, he humbly knelt and he prayed. He called upon his God. He was totally dependent on his power to do what only God could do. Think for a minute what Peter could have done. Big banner. Peter's in town. Come see the apostle do his power and wonders among us. He could have collected a mint. Everywhere he went, he would have been charming and wooing people. And if he was around today, he'd be on all the talk shows, right? Write books, how he could do it. Maybe send some prayer, oil in the mail, whatever you want. But Peter was not bringing glory to himself. Mm -mm. Peter gave all the glory to God. He was pleased to see the instances, I'm sure, to bring many to salvation. Verse 35 and verse, 34 and verse 42 of chapter 9 says that many came to faith in Jesus Christ. The miracles point to the, re- to the reality. The miracles point to the reality that we are all dead in our sins. And we all need a touch from Jesus. Amen? That only Jesus can bring and give power. But you know what else that those miracles point to, I think? There's a picture for us this morning. It pictures for us, because she's a believer. I think it pictures for us someone who is in ministry of love and sacrifice. Hers has been interrupted by death. But I think it's a picture that there are those who have serving the Lord, loving others, caring for others, sharing the gospel, and a clog has been thrown in the wheel of ministry. The progress of life and, 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 the, and the work of the Spirit in your life has come to a halt. A life that was blooming, a life that was flourishing, a life that was bearing much fruit suddenly ends. Some circumstance, some event, some experience can cause death or interruption and cause something to stop. Someone loses their zeal, their earnestness. Someone loses their heart. They become cold and hard, indifferent, unconcerned, uncaring, bitter of spirit. And he or she is like someone who's dead. But here by the hand of God, by the power of God, by the love of Jesus, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, she's restored to love, to serve, to pick up her good works for her joy and for God's glory. Some people are like that. They know what it was like to serve the Lord, to love the Lord, and then through a circumstance or, or, or a situation in their life, maybe through their own sin, through their own rebellion, maybe somebody sins against them, and their ministry has come to a complete halt, and it stops. They know what it means to have life sucked out of them. But they also mean, they also know what it means to have life put back in them by the touch of Jesus Edwin Markham was an American poet who had a banker one time work with him on an estate a settlement, and the banker betrayed him and stole all his money and rendered him completely penniless by what he did. He talks about it making him bitter, and for several years he couldn't even write poetry. He was a poet. He loved poetry. But it was only anything on his heart and mind was what this man did to him. Then one day when he was writing, trying to write, he was sitting at the desk, aimlessly crawling, scrawling, scrawling circles. As he doodled, making these circles, suddenly the thought stuck, struck him of the great circles of God's love and how it takes us all in. 
He was struck with inspiration and wrote these words. I drew a circle and shut him out. A heretic, a rebel, a thing to flout. But love, but love and I had the wit to win. We drew a circle that took him in. He forgave the banker. He realized how much he was forgiven. And he forgave the banker. He resumed his work. And some of his great poetry came after that incident. And that's what Jesus Christ can do. That's what Jesus can do. He can heal a hurting heart. He can heal a dead, cold spirit. Raise to life. Restore your heart. He can heal the bitterness that may be in your life. The coldness, the indifference that you have, may have felt in the past. Looking to touch your heart so that you would serve him and again with great joy. Begin to use your gifts, talents for your joy and his glory. And that brings us to a very important transition, chapter 10. We're told at the end of chapter 9 that Peter went to Joppa. He stayed in the home. Look what it says in the last verse. He stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, what? A tanner. A tanner. Some of you maybe from the city don't know what a tanner is. I looked it up. <laughs> he is not one who sits with light bulbs on both sides of his body getting dark. He works with leather. They kill animals and take the hide and make things with it. They say he lived by the sea because tanners use water, lots of seawater. It was helpful to take those hide. And according to Jewish law, touching dead things makes you unclean. And there is Simon, Peter, at Simon's house, the tanner, by the sea. Commentators are all over the map on this. Why was he there? Maybe he didn't care. Maybe he didn't care about Jewish law. Maybe he cared a lot about Jewish law. Maybe he didn't know. I don't know. They're all over the place. But I think you can't miss the irony of God. This had to be at least an experience in which God was beginning to break down Peter's defenses, we're going to see he's going to be taught what's clean and unclean. And here he is staying at the house of a tanner. In fact, in chapter 10, verse 23, Peter also, while at the tanner's house, invites the emissaries that this Italian Gentile sent to get Peter. He, you'll see, he, he sends some people, go get Peter for me. And when they get there, it's been a long journey. Peter says, come on and stay with me, Gentiles, at the tanner's house who kills animals and I'm a Jew. Like things are happening here. I don't know how you missed that. I'm not quite sure how far we can go with that, but it's got to say something. But Simon, the tanner, by the sea, is still a Jew. And Peter's going to be told, you're going to go to the Gentiles. You see, the problem was that although Peter had become a Christian, he still thought like a Jew. Can't blame the guy. And according to the Jewish way of thinking, God did not save Gentiles as Gentiles. They had to become Jews first. Peter had to be thinking, when they come to faith in the Messiah, do they need, do the men need to be circumcised? Do they need to watch and follow dietary laws? What about the Mosaic law? I mean, this conversion, even in those days when people converted to Judaism, there was proselytes to Judaism, they would have to go undergo certain laws. They had to become a Jew in order to become saved. That's the way he was thinking. The Old Testament has a lot of stories of, of Gentiles coming to faith. But you know, as I looked at them this week, Rahab, Gentile, has faith in Yahweh. And she married a Jewish man. You can look at Matthew 1. You can see the genealogy. Ruth, even the Moabite, says to a Jewish mother-in-law, Naomi, for where you go, I go. Where you lodge, I'll lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. And then marries a Jewish man. So with that, let's turn to chapter 10. The long narrative, we're only going to cover two scenes. There's seven altogether. Scene one is the narrative uh, where it begins. Vision and prayer of Cornelius. Scene two uh, is the corresponding visit of Peter. And that's as far as we're going to get just the first two scenes. I'm not going to give you the rest. Let's, let's look at this, okay? Next slide is up. Okay, look at chapter, this, this is huge, folks. All right, this is huge, and I don't mean huge, but scene one. At Caesarea, Caesarea, there came a man named Cornelius, a centurion, of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household. 
He gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. Okay? So you kind of get, get a flavor. Verse 3, about the ninth hour of the day, he, was, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have been ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who's called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and devout soldiers from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Okay, so you see what's going on here. Caesarea, again, is about 30 miles, 32 miles from Joppa. It's on the Mediterranean Sea. It's about, uh, I think it's 65 miles from Jerusalem. Very, very important city, okay? Very important city. It was the, it was the Roman capital of Judea. It was a military city. It was, it was filled with, with Romans uh, and, and Gentiles in the city. Cornelius is a commander of one of the six units of 100 men. A cohort would have 600 men. They were, they were broken into regions and, 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 and uh, uh, you know, just as they would today. You got one person in charge of 100, one person in charge of those 100 that are in charge of 600, and they would have legions, which were 6,000. So he's, he's somewhat high up in the rank, maybe like an army captain, maybe, a commander of, of a battalion, possibly. He has authority. He's obviously well-liked. I want to paint this picture, okay? Maybe an infantry commander, I said. He's a godly man. He probably came up through the ranks. He had some authority, had some power. He had some smarts. The Bible says he's a devoted man. He knows their God. He fears God. He respects him. He's, he's devoted to God. And you could see, or at least in his devotion, that it, it rolled into uh, the generosity. He would give alms. So he was a generous man. But look what it says. He says he spent much time in prayer, verse 2. And so I want you to notice, and I want you to catch this, that you can be religious, you could be devout, you could be sincere, earnest and prayerful, and even generous, but not be forgiven of your sins. Not be a Christian. There are many people today who think that all you need to do to be accepted in God's sight is to be religious, to be sincere, is to give, is to be generous, is to live a clean and moral good life. Here's a man exactly like that, but he's not converted. He's not a Christian. He's not born again. And there are many people today, maybe some of you here this morning, who are moral and upright, trying to do the right thing, trying to be generous, and think that's the way to approach God. That's religion. That's religion. Religion says my generosity, my morality, my prayers that I offer to God gets God's attention. He's watching me now. Look at all what I've done. All that I do makes God smile on me makes what makes God accept me and love me that that's religion but the gospel is Jesus's generosity his generosity his giving of his life his moral perfection and then dying in my place by sheer grace has God smiled down on me and therefore I will obey there's a giant difference between the two One is I'm being generous, I'm being devoted, I'm being obedient so that God will love me. The other one is God already loves me and therefore out of his love for me, I'll be generous, I'll be obedient. That's what this man needs. This man needs to see that all that he has done will never make him right with God. Never. If you jump down to chapter 11, just turn to page, verse 14. Peter is telling this story to the Jews. We'll get to that next week. Look what he says. He says he will declare to you, well, verse 13. And he told us he has seen an angel, he's talking about Cornelius, stand at his house, and the angel said to him, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who's called Peter. Verse 14, he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. See that? You and your household. What was the message? You can turn the page back. Verse 39 of chapter 10. We are witness of all he did both in the country of the Jews and Jerusalem. They put him to death. They're talking about Jesus by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. He rose, verse 43. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Cornelius, all that you're doing, wonderful. You're never going to approach God. 
It's never going to get you there. No way, no how. You need the message of the gospel. You need forgiveness of your sins. So he's praying. He's praying. I hear this question all the time. You ever hear this question? Pastor, what about those that are in a far remote country somewhere in the middle of somewhere? We don't even know where somewhere is, but it's somewhere. And they never heard about Jesus. I say, really? You ever hear of a man named Cornelius? God knows what needs to be done. God knows where the preachers need to go. Romans Romans 10 says, how can they call on him who they have not believed? And how they believe who they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful the feet are those who preach the good news. This story is dripping with God's sovereignty and his providence. His wonderful providence. Sovereignty is God's power and right to to direct and oversee everything and all of creation and govern over it and he reigns supremely over it. And God's providence is the working out of his sovereignty as he moves all of history to fulfill his intended purposes, his holy and good purposes. I, I don't think we have to wonder what's going on here, folks. It's God's providence. It's God moving on his heart. Jesus said in John 6, clearly, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. What's going on with Cornelius? He's obviously rejected pagan religion. He rejected the pluralistic worship of the Roman culture, including the worship of the emperor. And now he's seeking the one true God, the maker of the heaven and the earth. God is changing his heart and drawing Cornelius to himself. I submit to you this morning that Cornelius' prayers are because of the goodness and the grace and the good providences of God. God is orchestrating this. God is orchestrating this. It is in God's good providence that he sends an angel, who, by the way, could have done all the explaining himself. But he doesn't, because God uses us. People. And just like God, to send Peter to a Roman military army captain who oversees Rome like the Jew's enemy. And just like God to send to this Italian cohort who has power and authority, a fisherman, to explain to him the truth. But God's providence, by God's good providence, they go and they meet. Now the angel shows up and this big Italian tough guy is scared to death. Okay, I would be too. He was frightened. And the angel says, listen, don't worry about it. Your prayers, your alms, we heard. We got a message we want you to hear. Go to Joppa. There's a man named Peter. He's at the sea. He's with a guy named Simon. He's a tanner. He's by the sea. I guess they didn't have a GPS back then. Don't turn left at the corner. It's just go to the sea. There's a tanner there. And from what I understand, I don't know, maybe you do, you can smell it a mile away. I don't know, dead bodies, dead animals. They say you could find it. So just follow your nose toward the sea. Find Simon. And Peter the Apostle there called for him. That's what happens. And you see this working, this providential work of God. Next and finally is the progress of Peter's contempt. Scene two. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, which is not really the hour to pray, but he's going up there to converse with, with Jesus. And he became hungry, and he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open up and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals, reptiles, birds of the air. And, verse 13, there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, just in case you didn't get it the first two. It happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, we could talk about this all day, but the bottom line is, Peter saw the vision and was told to eat these unclean animals. Obviously, since the coming of Jesus, Jesus, uh, those things that were unclean become clean, and the animals, no doubt, there was probably swine, maybe some lobster, I don't know, like get your barbecue grill ready uh, and go and eat, and he's like, no, I can't do that. God's like, don't call, you know, what I've cleansed, don't call that uh, unclean or uncommon, and, and 
obviously the work of Jesus, the cleansing work of Jesus, the old ceremonial laws, and we were not going to get into that too much, were lifted. But the important things that he was trying to teach Peter was not only just food, was that the gospel was being opened, the good news of salvation to all the world. The gospel to everyone. But Peter saw this vision and it was revolting to him. Any Jew would have responded that way. He must be thinking, how could, I mean, think about this. How could something that's unclean and and common for 3,000 years, now all of a sudden, Lord, you're telling me it's clean. Three times he had to tell him. In fact, when the the curtain came down, when when the sheet came down to the four corners, it was really pointing to the whole world, the north, the east, you know, north, south, east, and west, everything on it. Don't call it unclean, call it clean. Don't call it uncommon. What I, what I have said. That means everybody. But let, 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 me, let, me, let me put this in perspective. Just give me a couple more minutes here. Because I want, you to, I want you to see something. It is not, now listen to me. It is not that we get to chapter 10 in the book of Acts and all the rest of the Bible. This is like three quarters. God didn't care about anybody but the Jewish people. That now since Cornelius in chapter 10, God is opening the door to everyone to be saved because God didn't care about anyone. You can walk away and think that. That God only cared for the Jewish people. God only cared about the nation of Israel. And God didn't care about people. But now in Acts chapter 10, God opens the door so that everyone can know him. That's not true. That is not what's happening here. Jewish separatism is real. Clean and unclean goes way back God imposed it even far back as Genesis 6 and 7 when you had unclean and clean animals on on the ark with Noah, okay? You go back to Genesis 12, Abraham was told to separate himself from his family to go to another land and that his seed will be or his offspring will be a blessing to all the nations. All throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the Old Testament, being God's chosen was a place not only of privilege, but more of responsibility, all right? Let me say that again. God's chosen was a place of privilege, but also one of great responsibility. To be God's instrument required them to be separate and distinct from all the peoples so that they may represent and reflect God well to the nations. It's always been that way. It's always been that way. In the New Testament, we say, be in the world, but not of the world, right? Be in the world, not of the world. God leads them out of Egypt into the promised land of Canaan. He takes steps to ensure their separateness, their distinctiveness as a people through whom the Messiah would come. He gives them the Mosaic Covenant. As part of that covenant, he makes distinctions between the clean and the unclean. So this is ingrained in their minds. Leviticus tells us that. They should walk in the customs, not of the nations they were living in, but the customs of of their God. That they shall inherit the land, the land flowing of milk and honey. The Bible says I, that God is saying, I am the Lord your God who has separated you from all the peoples of the earth. You shall therefore separate the clean beast and the unclean, the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourself detestable by beast or by bird or by anything which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. I mean, this is coming from God. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Now, that's very important. Very important that there is clean, they're unclean, that God has declared to them. God had chosen Israel to set them apart than any other nation, not because they were great, not because they were so holy, not because they were smarter or superior, the Bible's clear on that. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people. It's not because you were in the number, great in number, that any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of the people. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. That's in Deuteronomy 7. So you see this distinctiveness, this separation that God is calling a people to himself. And he says, you need to be separate from those pagans. You need to be separate from those false religions. You need to be separate from those false gods, and you shall follow me. He chose them, but he chose them to be a tool, to be a demonstration to the world, to everyone, what a relationship with God really looks like. Okay, you need to see that this morning. Second Chronicles chapter 6, Solomon builds this giant temple in Jerusalem, And when he prays and he dedicates this temple 
to, to Yahweh, to, to, his, to the Israel's God, the one true God, he says, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from afar for the sake of your great name, O Lord, and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes, that foreigner, that Gentiles, and prays toward this house, hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to to all which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel and that they may know that this house that I shall build is called by your name. In Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 46, the Israel has called God's people to be a witness to the world. Israel's purpose was to be an instrument through which he that God would bring his promised blessing to the Gentiles as well as the Jews. These laws were used and given to them to be a separate people, to reflect, to witness, to, to demonstrate who Jehovah God, the one true God, really is. But Israel, like the church, takes what is good and turns it around for something not good. Israel began to equate their separateness with superiority. In spite of God's warning, they began to equate their ceremonial laws of cleanliness with self-effort, self-work, um, you know, self-righteousness. Rather than showing humility and dependency upon God and upon his grace, Israel began to grow in their pride and self-righteousness based on their outward appliance of the law. Even Jesus, if you remember in um, Mark 7, so it's not what goes in a man that defiles him, right? In fact, Mark said, therefore, Jesus makes all food clean. That's in Mark 7, 19. So Peter, let me come back, okay? We're almost done. Peter has a strong tradition of prejudice and contempt that went back as far as Abraham and the misunderstanding of the law. Remember Jonah? That's one bigot right there. He had one race. Listen, go to Nineveh. They're wicked there. They're Gentiles. Preach to them the truth and watch them repent. I'm not going. And then they repent, and he's up on the hill somewhere crying like a little baby because they got saved. Now, before, before we get so hard on Peter, let's take a look at do we write off people, whole denominations maybe, simply because what you heard about them? Do we, close, do, we, do we close out whole ethnic groups because of prejudices, bad experiences with a person or maybe a family? Do we, do we mentally anathematize those who do not agree with us on political issues, on secondary biblical issues? Those who dress funny? Are our sheets full with educational and racial and cultural and, and spiritual rejects? And we cry out, Lord, Lord, no, no, please, they're not my type. Are we the type that only seeks to share the gospel and build relationships of our own kind? That's what Peter's talking about. That's what the Bible is talking about. Be it sexual preference, be it color of your skin, be it your political bent, be it the tatted up, Earring, whatever it is, what kind of people do we run and shun and refuse to go? Don't, he says, what I have said was clean, don't call it common. Don't call it common. The tragedy is specifically sad when you look and it's Peter. It's Peter, the apostle, the one who loves Jesus, the one who's been forgiven and restored. The one that God is sending. The one has this high and holy vision of God and yet can't really get it right when it comes to personal relationships. Don't think for a moment it can't happen to us. Don't think for a moment. I am not saying water down the truth. I am saying it is by grace that you know it. And we as people of God need to be very careful that we are not shunning, closing doors, not you, don't like you, don't like what you believe, don't like, and, and you know what? When God has said go to all the world, all the nations. Let me tell you something. In Galatians chapter two, if you have a Bible and the band comes up, if, if you haven't spoken to me personally for a, a little bit amount of time, you never heard this, but if you have, I'm sorry because I love this passive scripture. 
Galatians chapter 2, Peter is still struggling with the Jewishness of salvation. That you have to be a Jew, then be saved. And God's saying, no, salvation is for everyone. It's not through being a Jew first. That's what's happening here. Galatians chapter 2, Paul writes to the Galatian church, but when Peter or Cephas came to Antioch, I posed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, from the Jerusalem church, the Jewish authorities of the Jerusalem church, before that, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. He's going right back. He sees the vision, he gets it, we're going to see that next week, but he falls back into that separatist mentality. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them so that even Barnabas was led astray by the hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct, their walking, their steps, were not in step with the truth of the gospel, I confronted Peter before them all. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This is what he's saying. You came to faith the same way. It wasn't being a Jew first. It wasn't being a Gentile. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. So we cannot hold contempt towards certain people groups, certain political groups, certain... The gospel is for everyone. So I will ask you, who are you shunning? Who do you hold in contempt? Who do you need to forgive, release, in order to be used of God again? Who does God want you to speak truth and love to? You may not agree with their lifestyle. I get that. God's not asking you to, to be sinful or to act sinful, but he is calling us to love people. And they need to hear the good news of Jesus. And God's not sending an angel to share the gospel. God is sending you and me. He could send an angel. He is not. He could do anything he wants. He is determined and he has declared that he wants us to carry the good news. Jesus' is perfect life his atoning death, his resurrection from the grave, and his ascension to the Father is good news. Let's pray. Father, I think sometimes we, in our default, act and have a sense of superiority over others. Father, we praise your people that that would not be. It is by grace and grace alone that we know you, love you, been forgiven by you. We see in Peter here that he, it, it, it's becoming a, a major transformation for him and that you save people of all races, of all colors, of all nations, of all tribes. And the good news is to go out to everyone. And that's something Peter's going to learn. But our oh God, we pray that we would learn that too, that our mouths would not remain closed but would be opened for the purpose of declaring your greatness and goodness and mercy to others in Christ. Search our hearts, Lord, as we respond in music, as we sing to you. Search our hearts. Help us to repent, repent well, and help us, Lord, to be on mission with you. And Father, if there's someone here that has never really come to that place of recognizing the the truth of the glory of Christ, we pray that they would come to know him today turn from their sins and and repent and, and receive him. But help us as a church to be a people who are marked by love. We ask all this in Jesus' good name. Amen.